This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm happy to see you, Leah. We're back, aren't we? We're just doing a lot of these live episodes, eh, Catherine? You can't get rid of us, actually, it turns out. (laughs) Well, there's so much to talk about. We couldn't just wait until our next season drops. We had to kind of get into it. This is true. And so we are back with this second live episode of the show. And this one is focusing on domestic policy as kind of a counterpart to our last conversation about global climate negotiations with Mary Robinson. And I know our listeners are probably super curious about all the news that's been coming out of the administration, you know, what's going on in Congress on climate. And so we wanted to look at what's going on with federal policy, trying to find some nuggets of hope and possibility and what it's going to mean for the planet. Yeah, I do like a hope nugget, especially dipped in some kind of good sauce. (laughs) I I was thinking more like a hope nugget is like chocolate with like pecans or pecans, as some people say, you know, caramel. Like, that's what a hope nugget is. It's like chocolate deliciousness, no? (laughs) Yeah, yours is going to have pecans and caramel, and mine's going to have pecans (laughs) and caramel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, well, some of us are Canadian, okay? okay. eh? So we were super stoked for this episode to have Julian Brave Noisecat back with us. Those who listened to season one, you know that Julian is a writer, activist, policy expert. He's got a deep understanding of Washington climate politics. And recently he was named to the Time 100 Next List. And he hosted a great episode in season one of A Matter of Degrees called Changing Woman, One Navajo's Fight for a Just Transition. And the really cool thing is that the protagonist of that amazing episode, Wahala Johns, is actually now working in the Biden administration at the Department of Energy. Yeah, super cool. It was really exciting to see that news when it came out. And I know Julian must have been really excited, too. So Julian joined us for this episode, and his formal title, despite the many hats that he wears, is Vice President of Policy and Strategy at the Think Tank, Data for Progress. And he's also a fellow at the Type Media Center. But when he's not busy think tanking and typing, he's also a journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, Vox, Vice. I could go on and on. He's quite a prolific writer out there. So we were lucky to have him back on the show. We did things a little bit differently today, where I was mostly the asker of the questions, and you were a little bit more in the hot seat as our resident political scientist and giving us your take on how all these things are going as well. Yeah, my alter ego, Professor Stokes, came to the show. (laughs) We like her very much, and we started by asking Julian just to set the scene when it comes to what's been going on domestically with climate these past few months. So we want to talk about the state of play when it comes to Congress and the Biden administration. Julian, let's start with you. Set the scene for us. What is going on in terms of domestic climate policy in this moment? So even before President Biden took office, he signaled his strong commitment to climate action by actually creating two new positions in his administration, 
one for a special climate envoy, uh, who is John Kerry, and another for a domestic climate czar, Jennifer Granholm. Oh, excuse me, Gina McCarthy. Sorry, I get these names confused sometimes. And then also um, a number of other, you know, strong appointments for, you know, traditional cabinet positions. Uh, One week into his administration, he unveiled a slew of executive orders exactly seven days after he was sworn in. Uh, And then in March, he unveiled the American Jobs Plan, which is a more than $2 trillion infrastructure package with about a trillion dollars, depending on how you count, going towards uh, domestic climate action. We should add, although this is not going to be a huge subject of our conversation, that in April, he hosted a climate leaders summit with a number of global leaders where the United States tried to assert its leadership on climate, tried to encourage other nations, especially China and India, um, as well as others, Brazil, to take more bold action to address global warming. So it's been a very significant focus of the first few months here of the Biden administration, going back to even before the president assumed office. There's a lot of politics that lie ahead. The American Jobs Plan is going to start moving through Congress in the coming months, and those congressional negotiations are going to, uh, alongside the implementation of a number of regulations later on in the year, are going to determine you know just how much uh, the president is able to achieve on this essential issue. Well, Julian, you covered so much ground there. I'm very impressed. What am I going to add? You know, I think, as Julian just said, the Biden administration has come out so boldly on climate change, more so than we would have thought. And it started even before the administration began with appointments, really amazing appointments. Gina McCarthy and John Kerry are, of course, top of the list, but people like Jennifer Granholm and, of course, Deb Holland that we'll talk about later, which uh, Julian was really instrumental in helping get to happen. But then even below that level, amazing people like Sonia Agarwal in the White House, David Hayes, people like Jeremiah Bowman, Shalonda Baker, Wahala Johns in the DOE. There's just so many amazing people who have deep trust and experience in the climate movement who are now inside the Biden administration and helping to fuel all the stuff that uh, Julian went over. Yeah, it is really exciting. And I think it's fair to say that there was a good bit of anxiety from activists and progressives. And I think, Julian, correct us if we're wrong, but I would put you in this camp about kind of whether Biden would take climate Seriously, right? At at sort of the level that we know is is necessary and in the ways that we think are are just. And I'm curious now, you know, kind of a, a season into this, how do you think Biden is doing so far on the issue? Has he wooed you <laughs> when it comes to climate? Well, I guess people could question whether I take climate action seriously, given that I forgot Gina McCarthy's name <laughs> um, for a second there. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, so, you know, I think that there was widespread concern during the presidential primary that President Biden represented more of the same when it came to climate change. And on this issue in particular, more of the same is not nearly enough and is going to, you know, ruin the planet for future generations and future selves um, because we're at that that point in climate. Early on in his administration, he made some comments that were, I, I would say, especially concerning. There was a concern around his first sort of draft of his climate plan, which came out around May 2019, and whether he would be aggressive in his stance towards natural gas or what's increasingly called fossil gas by advocates and experts. 
And, you know, to his credit, I think that uh, Biden was actually fairly responsive to those concerns over time. After the primary, as it became very clear that Biden was going to be the Democratic Party's nominee, he created a unity task force with representatives from the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, including uh, leaders of the Sunrise Movement like Varshini Prakash uh, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who were both on the climate-focused working group of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force. And, you know, he was willing to actually revise his climate plan in the second edition of his platform, which was called the Build Back Better plan. And I was actually talking to some political scientists and historians at the time, in particular Daniel Schlossman, who wrote this wonderful book called When Movements Anchor Parties. And he told me that Biden actually adopting more progressive positions when he was already assured of his party's nomination was an unprecedented move in modern democratic political history. The the nominee usually moves to the center uh, as they're heading toward the general election and not to the left. So I think that that uh, moment of the party reconciling its ideological and other differences was really key. And I would also give the president effort in, um, you know, being this unusual political figure who seems to be able to bridge these generational and ideological divides that do exist on the American left. I totally agree with everything Julian just said. You know, a lot of us were worried at the beginning of the primary and Then a new plan came out after that Bernie-Biden task force that Julian talked about, which included really bold ideas like the 100 percent clean electricity standard by 2035, which was endorsed by that unity task force with people like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Varshini Prakash from Sunrise, etc. So, you know, we started to see really bold stuff from Biden. And it wasn't just, you know, a campaign document on a website. He was talking about this on the campaign trail. In fact, the campaign ran climate-focused ads in both Michigan and Arizona, really committing to climate as an issue. And I think Julian is so right that Biden is this unlikely figure. Maybe his closeness with his granddaughters is part of the explanation, or maybe his deep empathy as a human being. You know, I think he really understands the fear that young people feel about climate change, and he doesn't want to leave them with this huge problem. And so he's really become this unlikely climate champion in in a really exciting way. I think it's a really, obviously, very visible but exciting example of what seems to be happening in so many sectors, right, of people being willing to learn and being willing to lead on a topic that may not have defined their careers to date. And as you say, Leah, the social science does tell us that uh, daughters and granddaughters are particularly effective climate messengers. So I think you... Maybe on to something there. As you mentioned, Julian, at the end of March, Biden proposed the American Jobs Plan, big proposal to spend between 2 to $3 trillion on infrastructure, everything from clean public transit to clean electricity, removing lead from pipes, ending fossil fuel subsidies. I think it's fair to say it's a big idea. Leah, let's start with you on this one. What is going on with this proposal, Professor Stokes? Well, the American Jobs Plan, as Julian mentioned, came out right at the end of March. I believe it was March 31st. 
Biden gave a big speech in Pittsburgh. Uh, They've sort of laid out their plans. It's a really bold idea to invest in infrastructure and invest in the clean energy transition. And a lot of the framing that the Biden administration has been focusing on is jobs. And actually, Julian's been out there, and I very much agree with him, saying that we should make climate change about benefits, about jobs, about good things, not just about sort of pain and suffering and sacrifice. And that's really the political theory behind the way they've been talking about this plan. And I think it's really smart. Some of the components of the American Jobs Plan include uh, the clean electricity standard, trying to hit 100% clean power by 2035, commitments on clean transportation. I think this is perhaps the thing the sometimes I hear the admin talk the most about. They're really into, you know, public transit, school buses, charging infrastructure, EVs, you name it. Maybe that's the sort of Biden effect. And it certainly has rubbed off on Secretary Buttigieg, who is like (laughs) Biden 2.0 and his love for clean transportation. And then also the building sector, which is another area that I'm very passionate about. In some ways, actually, the building's commitments are not even as bold as the campaign uh, targets were. So the campaign was aiming to do 2 million homes uh, over the time period, and the the American Jobs Plan is only saying 2 million buildings, so that would be commercial and and homes. And that's that's something that I feel like we need to go bolder on. I've been very mm-hmm. inspired by the work of Rewiring America, RMI, Sierra Club, lots of local groups saying, hey, guys, we got to electrify buildings. We got to get off gas. And all this new research is coming out showing that having gas in your home for kids is like having secondhand smoke, that it increases the risk of asthma for kids for like by 42% if you have a gas stove in your home. So I feel like buildings is a place where we can go bigger, but really exciting stuff on transportation and the electricity sector and and even other stuff like justice, like the lead pipes transformation and the commitment to the Justice 40, having 40% of the benefits of investment go to disadvantaged communities. So big, bold idea, and we got to see how it goes in Congress uh, if they pick it up and, and how it develops. Yeah. Julian, jump in if there's anything on the sort of legislative piece, but also curious what your thoughts are on the prospects of actually getting this thing into law. How are you seeing the odds and what are the hurdles that have to be overcome? Yeah. So to avoid being duplicative, because I think uh, Leah covered a lot of ground there, I would just say that the views that I've mostly seen from experts and advocates have been that the American Jobs Plan had pretty solid breadth of policy coverage. I would agree that the the stuff on buildings and housing could be stronger for sure. And I think you could make the same argument in some specific areas. But overall, I would say that they're trying to do a lot across the sectors that we need to transform and decarbonize. And that they are also trying to incorporate a lot of pieces of equity and justice. So we just mentioned the Justice 40 initiative, which would dedicate 40% of the benefits of the jobs plan to communities on the front lines of poverty and pollution. Uh, They're also trying to make a strong commitment to organized labor and unions by, you know, enforcing strong procurement and labor standards, uh, which I think is very encouraging. Uh, In my view, unions are essential to healthy and equitable democracy and economy. But I think there's also this question of scale. And while the American Jobs Plan, I think, is you know 
really big. I mean, we're talking in trillions of dollars of figures here. It's over $2 trillion. And when you combine that with the American Families Plan, which is $1.8 trillion, you know, that's, a, that's a lot of um, public investment. But if anything, actually, I think that, uh, especially with the jobs report that came in today, which showed that um, job growth is actually slowing in, in the economy, uh, as well as some compelling evidence from uh, various economists, including Paul Krugman in his, in his most recent op-ed, uh, that there aren't actual real concerns about inflation right now, uh, that we should actually be investing even more into the economy to decarbonize and also to achieve full employment. You know, I think Biden often talks about his desire to lead an LBJ or FDR-sized presidency. And one thing that both of those Democratic presidents had in common was that they did aim for, you know, full employment, a situation where everyone who wants a job in the economy can, can find a job. Uh, and that's not just a good thing because it's good for people to have work and the benefits that come with work, but also because it rebalances the power between you know, the managers and owners of capital and the labor market um, and gives workers more bargaining power. And there's a compelling study from the Political Economic Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst that suggests that to you know, take on uh, decarbonization and to move the economy to full employment, we should be investing something on the scale of $1 trillion per year over 10 years or $10 trillion over 10 years. So I would say that there's going to be a lot of back and forth between the different ideological camps, between moderates and progressives, especially over the coming months about the American Jobs Plan. And one of the core things is going to be on the scale and scope of the investments with progressives uh, saying that we need to go bigger and bolder, perhaps even bigger and bolder than what the president has uh, put forward. I think that's so right, Julian. The challenge with me and Julian on this podcast is we really agree with each other. <laughs> I know the tension things, so. here, guys, the dramatic tension. <laughs> the tension. <laughs> Ugh, I can't believe he said that. I think, too, that, you know, this is the best opportunity we have had in a decade to do climate policy. It's the best opportunity we've had to do comprehensive climate legislation since Waxman Markey. And, and it's way bigger and bolder than even that package was. And so I'm really hopeful about this bill passing. I think it's so great strategically that the Biden administration has put it on the top of the agenda. You know, we're not in year two, you know, bottom of the ninth kind of thing here. We're saying, hey, this is the agenda before we get to, let's say, the fall of this year to pass a climate bill. And, you know, obviously there's tight votes in the Senate. There's even tight votes in the House. But I feel like we can pull together, we can focus on job creation, we can focus on investment, get a lot of benefits here, and that everybody will see something that they like in this package, I hope, except maybe oil and gas. <laughs> um, but that's the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, we're trying to stabilize the climate over here. So, you know, I think there's a really, really big shot and we all need to pull together to try to get this across the finish line. Let's talk a little bit about agencies. Julian, as Leah mentioned at the top, you were a huge proponent of Deb Holland's appointment to head up the Department of Interior. And it's early days, obviously, but curious how you think things are going. What does she need to get done and what can she get done recognizing that she is a visionary working in, you know, a little bit of a dinosaur of an institution? I think it's fair to say. I was really proud to advocate for Madam Secretary Holland to become Madam Secretary Holland. Um, she was formerly the congresswoman from New Mexico and is a citizen of the Laguna Pueblo. And as a native woman is actually the first 
Native American to ever serve in the United States cabinet, which is just, you know, a remarkable achievement. And I think speaks firstly to just how incredible of a, a leader and politician she is, because, you know, the truth of the matter is that she was not, you know, a sort of insider who was tight with the president and his camp. She was only elected to the Congress in 2018. You know, she just didn't have those relationships and connections. And I think that's where a bit of wish casting and organizing and just a really compelling story came in and elevated her to become, you know, sort of uh, an outside candidate for what is a really significant role. And as a journalist and activist, I, you know, helped sort of drum up support in the press and, and social media and among sort of networks of environmentalists and progressives and tribal leaders and such. And I think that that part is also really key to getting her into that role. And I think to me, that's really encouraging because it suggests that, you know, with a good idea and some hard work and some organizing, um, good things really can happen uh, through the political process, which all too often feels like an impossible nut to crack in so many ways and just such an unjust system. You know, the Interior Department is an enormous, enormous sprawling bureaucracy. Uh, it manages a fifth of the nation's landmass, huge reserves of natural resources, as well as the nation-to-nation relationship with the 574 federally recognized tribes across the country. And, you know, it has also been deeply implicated in the colonization and attempted assimilation of First Peoples throughout its history. So in the late 1800s, it implemented the Dawes Act, which was a a policy to uh, privatize and essentially alienate tribal lands that were held collectively. Uh, It helped to um, further the mission of boarding schools where Native children were taken away to and forced into assimilation, where they were uh, often um, abused and beaten for speaking their languages and maintaining their cultures. And into the 20th century, it also you know, played a significant role in the era of termination, which was a, a stated policy of just that, terminating uh, tribal nations. And you know, that's, um, that's a lot of history to come up against if you're, if you're Secretary Holland. And you know, I, I think that expectations for her are going to be incredibly high. But I think also, you know, these kinds of things don't don't change overnight. You know, that kind of a ship can't turn 90 degrees in in a few months. Um, but I think there are some encouraging signs already. So, for example, actually, just today, the Department of Interior, along with USDA, Department of Commerce, uh, and CEQ, that's the Council of Environmental Quality, uh, released a report sort of outlining how the United States would start to achieve this goal of conserving 30% of its lands and waters by 2030. This was one of the many commitments President Biden made uh, among those executive orders he signed just a week into his presidency. Uh, And among the core principles that that report uh, identified was upholding tribal sovereignty and pursuing indigenous-led conservation. So essentially uh, starting to return lands and waters and resources to native control as part of a broader broader environmental strategy. Um, So I'm really really hopeful that uh, those kinds of policies will continue to be pursued and that Secretary Holland's path-breaking leadership will also mean uh, some some pretty significant, uh, meaningful change for tribal nations and for, for everybody. Yeah. I have to say, I just think it's incredibly 
courageous to take on leadership of a department with that much really horrifying history and also just ways of doing things that are certainly not in alignment with a a just and livable future and to be willing to step in and try to do that kind of healing and, and change work that is hard on a good day and really hard in a sprawling bureaucracy. Leah, I would be remiss if we didn't touch on the Department of Energy, um, which of course is playing a huge role as well in the administration's climate work. What's your read on what's happening over there? Yeah. So similarly, I think President Biden went with a pretty bold leader in uh, former Governor Jennifer Granholm. Secretary Granholm is a really big champion of clean energy. She is a Energizer bunny, so to speak. She has endless energy and enthusiasm. I feel like in some ways we are similar in that regard. Uh, You know, she's just enthusiastic at all levels at all times. So I feel like she's going to really bring a lot of energy to the topic, so to speak. Um, (laughs) But I'm Ching. Yeah. And you know what I mean if you've ever seen her speak. So, you know, and I think from her on down, there have been amazing decisions made. So I mentioned earlier a bunch of people at DOE. So people like Shalonda Baker have been brought in to sort of lead a new initiative on on energy justice and environmental justice in the DOE. Um, Wahela Johns, too, working on some of the issues that she was working on outside of government, now doing that inside People like Jeremiah Bowman, who is a longtime politico, so to speak, who is on the inside working for clean energy, uh, great outcomes. I have a lot of friends doing stuff like transmission, you know, trying to get rid of the rollbacks under the Trump administration. I think that the uh, political appointments have been rock solid across the board at DOE. Um, Amy Wittemann just got announced actually to be going in there to be doing intergovernmental affairs. So really fantastic climate leaders who understand the challenge ahead of us. And I think that the agency is very oriented towards the Biden administration priorities. So things like how can we get a clean electricity standard passed this year. And Secretary Granholm has actually made comments that she thinks we can do it even through budget reconciliation, which is really important because we cannot seem to find Republicans to support a clean electricity standard despite years of effort. And actually, I wrote a report that was that came out with Data for Progress, Julian's organization, as well as Evergreen Action, showing how we can do a clean electricity standard through budget reconciliation. So, you know, she's clearly in the weeds on this stuff and wants to see real progress on clean energy. So I feel really excited about the direction of the Department of Energy as well. There's also a great gif of you zooming around, Leah, of doing your hand motion for budget reconciliation. It's like rainbows and sparkles. And I do feel like Secretary Granholm might be down with that, <laughs> yeah. that vibe. Similar energy. Yeah. We got we got energy on energy. Yeah. We touched on the 40% commitment in the American Jobs Plan um, of, of sending those funds to impacted and frontline communities. But Touching back on what you were saying, Julian, about, you know, would Biden approach climate differently than Obama or would this be more of the same? What are we seeing that is distinctly different and specifically different when it comes to the topic of environmental justice? Yeah, so I would say that the Justice 40 commitment, which is, you know, again, a commitment to dedicating 40% of benefits. And I think there's actually going to be a lot of, a lot there in what ends up being defined as a benefit. And I'm actually going to follow that very keenly. 
is a key sort of piece of the Biden sort of theory of how to do um, not just climate, but to do all of his infrastructure investments. And I think the the core idea here is that, you know, an investment in a clean energy economy can also start to address some of the harms that existed and persist in the fossil fuel economy, you know, not just through the creation of jobs, but also through the reduction of pollution, you know, in many low-income communities of color, like Oakland, where I grew up, uh, there are very high rates of asthma and other environmentally caused uh, harms um, in those communities. And, you know, those things are fully preventable. Um, we, We should have replaced every single lead pipe in this country a long time ago. And it's actually really great that the Biden administration has prioritized that as part of the American Jobs Plan, even though that, you know, lead pipes have nothing to do at the end of the day with greenhouse gas emissions. That is just simply good policy, good environmental policy, good infrastructure and jobs policy. Um, And it also is incredibly popular. So um, in my view, every single time a Democrat goes and talks about the American Jobs Plan, they should be talking about how we're going to replace every lead pipe in the country. It's a really, really good and popular idea. I think one core thing here that is also really important is actually just understanding the the scope of environmental injustice in this country. So essentially, all of the latest research on small particulate matter in the air suggests that the more we learn about very, very fine particles that we that we are breathing in, uh, the more we learn about how harmful they in fact are and can be. And unfortunately, uh, we actually do not have a very strong data collection sort of apparatus built up across the country to really understand in detail what sort of pollution, you know, Americans are being exposed to. And so, you know, one of the core parts of the Justice 40 agenda that I hope um, gets built very quickly is actually developing those sorts of data collection and mapping capacities to even be able to start to identify, you know, with data on um, both socioeconomic realities as well as sort of pollution and other cumulative burdens that these communities face, where exactly are the most sort of burdened communities and sort of uh, then be able to equip lawmakers and policymakers with the knowledge to be able to do, you know, smart policy-based and empirically-based interventions. Um, And so that's, I think, going to be a really key component of of all of this. And um, I'm really hopeful that they don't sort of fudge around the edges of what a benefit is and really, you know, try to make that a meaningful thing. Yeah, that's a really critical distinction. And I'm glad you flagged it, Julian. I'm glad to know you'll be tracking that and keeping a, a spotlight on that as as things go forward. Just a, a quick reminder to everyone who's watching live that we're going to be taking some of your questions soon. So if you have questions, and I suspect you do, throw those into the chat and we'll get to them in a minute. We're going to close out our time, just the the three of us, with one of the things we have become kind of keen on doing, which is a sort of rapid fire closing, a little a little energy as we transition into some audience Q&A. So we'll go from Leah to Julian, and I'll just keep these coming. So Leah, give us one word to summarize the state of U.S. climate policy at this moment. Potential. Going with potential. Julian? 
encouraging. Nice. What is the number one thing you want to see in the American Jobs Plan beyond better aspirations around buildings? Leah? The clean electricity standard, obviously. (laughs) If we get 80% clean power by 2030, we'll cut carbon dioxide 86%, sulfur dioxide 93%, nitrous oxide 76% from the power sector, transformative policy, double clean power in 10 years. I mean, clean electricity standard. So excited about it. Coming in hot with the numbers. Julian, what about you? The number one thing. I'm actually going to second Leah on this one. I think that the clean electricity standard is is essential. There is so much carrot in the American Jobs Plan with incentives and investments. I think we do need that stick, though. And the clean electricity standard is a core one for the power sector. Nice. Leah, the number one executive action you'd like to see still to come this year. I'd like to see some tightening of various power sector things. So things like the mercury or toxic standard, rules around coal pollution, coal ash, coal waste, those kinds of things. Because that's another way that we can get into the power sector through the uh, regulations. Nice. What about you, Julian? I think that methane re- regulations on methane leakage are really important. The more that we learn about methane in the air and trace it back to natural gas or fossil gas, the more we should be concerned about that phenomenon. Um, And I think there's also other ways that we can start regulating fracking as well as, um, as Leah was bringing up earlier, you know, indoor air pollution, both of which are really uh, essential. Great answer, Julian. I love it. Um, In a slightly different mode, give us a song that you're listening to right now that's pumping you up for climate. Leah Stokes. Trying to remain optimistic. You know, the pathway to legislation passing is treacherous. And so Good (laughs) as Hell by Lizzo has got to be my soundtrack right now. (laughs) Keep me going. I love it. What about you, Julian? Uh, Rough Riders Anthem, Rest in Peace, DMX. Yeah. Nice. Oh, very cool. I'm I'm seeing a Spotify playlist possibly in the future here. Um, and, uh, what about some lines of poetry or other wisdom that's guiding you and keeping you grounded? Leah. Well, I love Mary Oliver. I'm sure you do too, Catherine. And there's a line of her poem, which is, may I be a tiny nail in the house of this universe, tiny, but useful. And I always try to orient myself towards how can I make a difference? How can I make a difference in this world? Beautiful. Julian. I'm rereading N. Scott Mamaday's first novel, Housemaid of Dawn, which is not poetry, but it actually started as a collection of poems, became a collection of stories, and then ended up becoming a novel. So um, it's a very lyrical book. Beautiful. Very cool. Well, thank you all so much. And we're going to turn to some of the audience questions before before we run out of time. Um, so the first one we've got, has the pandemic which has exposed so many social justice and environmental fault lines in this country, made action on climate change more or less achievable? Maybe I'll go first. I think some people thought that the pandemic was how we were going to solve climate change. Like we're all going to live in our houses alone, never go anywhere. (laughs) And that is not how we're going to solve climate change. We're going to decouple pollution from our economy. We're not going to shut down our economy. So I just want to clarify that, that this is not the same thing as climate action. But, you know, the, the sad thing about all this 
huge economic fallout from all the massive death uh, across this country, overwhelmingly in communities of color. The thing is that we have an economic crisis. And so how do we solve that problem? I think that Biden is right, uh, that the way we solve that problem is by doing clean energy jobs by, you know, investing in our in our economy. And so this does provide an opportunity to say, how do we want to build back, as Biden would say, we want to build back clean, right? We want to build back better. And so that's the way in which we we have this opportunity to really invest in our economy. Julianne, you want to add anything? Yeah, I would say that the pandemic has revealed sort of the poverty of free market approaches to trade and supply chains. So, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, we had shortages of PPE, you know, it was hard to get masks and and things like that. And, um, you know, one of the core sort of ways of looking at climate policy is as essentially a supply chain issue, is essentially as an industrial policy issue. And I think one of the core philosophical Uh, and economic sort of shifts underlying Bidenomics, if you want to call it that, is this orientation towards industrial policy and away from quote unquote neoliberalism, you know, to really say that we need to be focusing on making more resilient and robust industries, particularly here in the United States, which, you know, will help us in the next pandemic. And we'll also make sure that like, you know, we have enough semiconductors and, you know, can build electric vehicles in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Ohio and and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. This one's a little more philosophical. Is the slowness of democracy antithetical to real on-time fixes to climate issues? (laughs) Political scientist has to take that one first. Yeah. You want me to take that? <laughs> okay. I didn't know if that was like, ooh, I'm going to jump in or like, ooh, wow, ooh, this is a tough one. I think that was the latter. You know, I don't think so. I think democracy is challenging, but it's kind of the system we have and it's better than the alternative. Sometimes people live in this fantasy that if we were in sort of a fascist country or an authoritarian country, we could just impose climate action. But I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that that, that, that is actually a pathway to a greener world personally. So I believe in democracy. I believe in the process. Congress is obviously not fully democratic. Certain people have more voices than others. Some people have no voices, right? Like DC and Puerto Rico, undocumented people, non-citizens. I'm not even a citizen. I cannot vote. <laughs> Which in this is a country. damn shame. So, I will you know, say. a lot <laughs> someday soon, very soon. I'm applying. Anyway, you know, so obviously not everybody gets a voice and our democracy is not full and perfect by any means. But it's the system that we have and we have those 50 votes thanks to Georgia and thanks to the organizing work of largely black women in that state and the great outcome for Ossoff and Warnock and we've got the house. And so hey, we have a window. We can do something thing here. So I think we got to work with the system that we got and democracy can make change uh, when it comes to climate policy. I would agree with what Leah just said. And our democracy in particular is among global democracies relatively unrepresentative of, you know, what the popular voice is of voters. In particular, the Senate is a significant problem. And if, you know, Republicans succeed at redistricting in ways that draw lines to their favor, ahead of the 2022 uh, midterm elections, it's going to become an even greater challenge. Uh, The Electoral College also actually, because of the way that it works, you know, disproportionately benefits rural and predominantly white 
parts of this country and states. And I think that the majority of the country uh, believes in climate change, wants to see wants to see their government act on climate change. It's just that um, you know we we do have a system that allows for forms of minority rule, which is undemocratic. And to add on to Julian's excellent point, you know, we shouldn't be waiting for a better time for a more perfect policy to pass. I've heard a few people say that, and I just think, how do you think that went down with Waxman Markey? You know, we waited to 10 years. Policy windows do not come around very often. And like Julian is saying, 2022 could be really bad. Look what's going on in Georgia right now, the disenfranchisement of people. You know, we're going to have even harder time with our elections going forward because unfortunately the Republican Party has become quite anti-democratic, to be honest. So I think we take the opportunity when we have it. We try to push for everything we've got, but we don't think that we could come back later and get a better opportunity later. No, this feels like, this feels honestly like the window we weren't sure if we were ever going to have, right? Um, (laughs) We've got to take it. We've got to take it. Your birthday, right, Catherine? Exactly. It was an extremely good birthday, I will say. Um, So this is a, this is a really interesting question. Given that climate change poses substantial health threats. Um, And we talked also about health threats of burning fossil fuels and using fossil fuels in our homes. Could you comment on the relative absence of HHS, of Health and Human Services, in the Biden administration's climate actions? Well, the funny thing about agencies is that Sometimes things fit in places you don't expect. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the Department of Energy has like a massive nuclear weapons budget. In fact, the majority of the Department of Energy is actually about managing nuclear weapons and the stockpiles and proliferation. And so, you know, it could be that some of the health pieces actually fit in EPA, Mm -hmm. believe it or not. That's where a lot of the health pieces live in the climate world. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, I would also just say that there's a big categorization question that comes along with some of this, you know, climate policy stuff. You know, for example, I think that replacing every lead pipe in the country is great policy, great infrastructure development also has nothing to do with greenhouse gas emissions. But I think the place to look would be sort of the environmental justice suite of issues and, you know, included in something like an updated equity mapping system would of course be uh, data on pollution and you know the impacts that that has on on health. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, our time is up, which I'm bummed about. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and share everything that you're tracking and observing, and just for a great conversation as ever. Thank you so much for having me. We should do uh, round three sometime. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Dr. Leah Stokes. And me, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. Extra special thanks to the Crosscut team and Julian Brave Noisecat for making this very special episode possible. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Dalvin Abuwaji, and Stephen Lacey produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spursum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalaxono. And we'll be back very soon with season two, so stay tuned. I know, but it kind of made sense. I you took my to line, Leah. You took my line earlier. <laughs> Sometimes it just happens. We go with the flow. We're flowsters. <laughs>